August of 1957, the respected BBC news show Panorama announced that thanks to a very mild winter and a virtual elimination of all the dreaded spaghetti weevil, Swiss farmers were enjoying a bumper spaghetti crop. It accompanied this announcement with footage, like behind me here, of Swiss peasants pulling strands of spaghetti down from trees. And huge, huge numbers of BBC viewers called the station wanting to know where they could get a spaghetti tree. To which the operators were told to diplomatically say, well, take a sprig of spaghetti, place it in a can of tomato juice, and hope for the best. And it has been and still continues to be the number one rated out of 100 April Fool's hoaxes, it's number one still of the one hoax that fooled thousands of people. Now, how many of you, to be honest, you've been fooled by something on Facebook or an email or on the internet before? Just raise a hand and confess. Confession's good. I'm raising my hand because I have as well. I bought into something that looked so right, looked so real, only to discover that some, fortunately for me, very caring friends private messaged me to say, uh, that's not real. You need to do a little Snopes to figure out what you're going to believe in and what you're not going to believe in. So what I want to do today is I want to do a little Snopes, because here's why. What do you talk about when Easter, the resurrection celebration of the body, resurrection of Jesus, coexists with April Fool's Day? Right? What do you talk about when, when that happens? I'll tell you what we talk about, and, and it's this. It's this question. Am I foolish to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Are Christians just a bunch of naive do-gooders who have lost their brain in any kind of common sense because they believe in a myth, they believe in a fairy tale, they believe in a story? Maybe it's the greatest hoax of all time. But I challenge you that it's not the greatest hoax of all time. I believe it's the greatest hope of all time. And so today, we're going to take a look at, in a different kind of approach, maybe you came here to hear a rousing message about Jesus popping out of the tomb, and, and we're not necessarily going to go there today, because what I want to do is address the question of what appears to be foolishness to many people in our culture today concerning the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, the foolishness of the cross or of Jesus or even resurrection is not a new thing. This isn't something that our postmodern, our post-Christian culture has conjured up. It's been around a long time. In fact, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter around A.D. 55. And in that letter, he uses this, these words. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Listen to what it says. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But it is the power of God, or but, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You could insert anything there, the foolishness of the resurrection, or the whatever. The point is, it's been around a long time. Skeptics have been around for a very long time. But listen to this today, because here's, here's the point I want to make. The point I want to make is that the resurrection is the anchor point of the Christian faith. That everything Christians believe hinges and hangs on this real event that happened in real time in real history. Because this event not only launched the church, but it was the catalyst of the Christian faith that still exists today, millennia, a couple of millennia after the event that we celebrate called the resurrection of Jesus. But here's the thing. 
Today we have millions of Christians, but can I just tell you that before the resurrection, there were no Christians, okay? In fact, the night that Jesus died on that cross, he didn't hardly have any followers, See, up to that point, he had a lot of folks that followed him. He had 12 disciples that he had called, but he was abandoned by all but one that we know is recorded being at the cross as Jesus died, John. But the rest of them fled. Why? Because when Jesus died, everybody unfollowed him because his death seemed to contradict the claims that he had made. And here's what they believed, which most of us throughout history still have believed, that people die and they stay dead. All right? 99.99% of people who get put into the ground stay there, right? And maybe you've buried a loved one and you have maybe had wishful thinking that they would come back to life. And this wasn't just wishful thinking now that's carried us 2,000 years forward into the point in which we are in now. But that day, friends, people believed it was over. The death of the Messiah was game over for Christianity. And can I remind you that that morning... That Easter morning, nobody was there to observe the resurrection. I mean, if I was a follower of Jesus, I would hope that I would be in my lawn chair, sitting right in front of the, the tomb, waiting to watch the greatest miracle of all time. But there was no rockin' New Year's kind of event, you know, with Dick Clark. Yes, he was alive back then. With Dick Clark, you know, counting down from 10, 9, 8 as the big olive dropped down the tower and dropped right above the tomb. And when it landed, all of a sudden, throughout the cemetery, it rocked out Europe's version of the final countdown, and the tomb pops open, and out comes Jesus. That's what we'd expect. Cue the special effects, the smog. I mean, it would, but nobody was there. And you have to ask, why was nobody there? Here's why, and I like the way Andy Stanley, pastor and writer, says it this way. Nobody expected nobody. Okay? Nobody expected nobody. In fact, even the followers of Jesus who are documented in the Gospels as coming to the tomb that morning, by the way, they were coming to do what? Prepare the dead body. Because that evening he had died, it was heading toward the Sabbath. They quickly took him from the cross, wrapped him, but they had to come back and finish the embalming process after the Sabbath. So they came early the next morning after the Sabbath to prepare a dead body. And when they appeared in that tomb, they were shocked. But they weren't shocked because all of a sudden they believed, oh, he's alive, he's alive. They were shocked because they thought somebody stole the body of Jesus. The very thing, by the way, the Christians were accused of doing. Stealing. I mean, the Christians themselves, the Christ followers, I should say, themselves, were accused of stealing the body, and that's what they thought happened, because nobody expected nobody, because when somebody dies, they stay dead, and history had proven that over and over and over and over again. Nobody expected nobody. So what happened? I like the way that the Apostle Paul addresses it. So grab your Bibles if you have one. If you don't, there are Bibles in the seat in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, that is our gift to you. Please take that Bible home if you promise to at least read the rest of 1 Corinthians after we get done today and uh, move on to the Gospel of Luke. But here's the deal. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is writing to a group of people that he had, in essence, pastored. He'd went to Corinth, he had planted a church, he had ministered there for 18 months, and then a couple of years later, he wrote them this letter. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 1, we, we see him speak about 
this event, the resurrection. He says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and of which you've taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. Now, why did Paul want to remind them? Why did Paul need to remind them? Here's what had happened. After Paul had had been there preaching and teaching about the resurrection of Jesus and how to become a follower of this risen Savior named Jesus, the culture in which they lived, of highly Greek culture, which is primarily the culture in which many Christians lived, this highly Greek culture could not believe in a resurrection. And so all of a sudden, people were invading the church, accusing these Christians of, of, of lying, of very false things, and some of them began to waver in their faith. Because they never actually really saw the risen Savior, perhaps. All they had heard was a story, and they were about to cash in their faith. And if that's where you're at this morning, can I just remind you, you're in good company. Because Jesus' followers really questioned the authenticity of the resurrection of Jesus. The very day it happened, even though he'd promised them it was going to happen. Churches that Paul planted were still influenced by the culture who said, this is silliness. This is foolishness. There is no resurrection. And so he writes to remind them of the gospel that he preached when he was there. And he goes on to say in verse 3, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And here's the crux of his message. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that would be Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, to all the apostles, and at last of all, he appeared to me as to one abnormally born. Now, I want to explain this morning, the few moments that we have together, why this passage is so critically important and relevant for us today. And I want to speak to three groups of people who are in this room this morning. The first group is this. It's those who believe, but you wonder. Maybe you grew up in church, you believe, you believe in Jesus, you believe in God, but you wonder about some things that are hard for you to explain. And maybe even you wonder about the validity of the resurrection of Jesus, because maybe you put somebody you loved to rest And you're wondering, is this all there is, or is there more to life than this life? I want to speak to you, but I also want to speak to the ones in the room who would wonder how anybody could believe, because to you, it's it's, it's foolishness. What I want to do today is, is remove at least one, if I can, at least one objection that our culture and perhaps you have held against the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want to just take one objection and look at it together closely. And then thirdly, there's the group of you who wonder if it's possible to believe again. Because maybe you grew up in church, but you left your faith. Because your Sunday school answers that you learned as a kid did not equip you to deal with the adult questions you faced at university. When real life hit, you're kind of like, whoa, what? I learned these things about God, and all of a sudden life is like very different. How do I reconcile these two with my childhood faith How do I deal with these big issues? The reality is your childhood Sunday school lessons probably aren't going to be enough to help you. But I want to look at one of those that maybe you didn't learn it this way when you were in Sunday school. So for all three groups, this passage I just read to you is the key passage 
We're going to look at it a little bit closer because the primary argument against Christianity is the resurrection. You take away the resurrection, you take away Christianity, right? All we have, if you take away the resurrection, all we have is a dead hero who was a good guy, a good teacher, a good rabbi, respected by a lot of people, but he's dead. We might have a holiday honoring his day. You might get a day off from work, but that's about it. But can I tell you that today, my, my case I want to present to you is we don't have a hero who's dead that we celebrate just on one day and get a holiday. It's somebody who lives and he gives us eternity to hope for. And that's the aim of today's message. But the argument is this, primarily against the Christian faith and against the resurrection. It goes like this. The resurrection is a myth. And perhaps you've heard this. The resurrection is a myth. It's nothing more than stories passed down through generations to suit the agenda of this Christian movement. It's nothing more than fabricated stories that couldn't be proven. And so much time has passed from the original events to the writing of those events that those stories have been altered. They've been fictionalized to create a, or, or portray a fabricated savior. They also claim that so much time has passed between the event and the actual capturing of those events that all the first-hand witnesses are now dead, so there's nobody there to vouch for or defend what was written. Because too much time has passed, it is now a myth. This morning, I want to give you a reason that you can have confidence in the resurrection of Jesus that will also give you confidence, hopefully, to pursue a bit farther into the Christian faith. So here's the deal. Right now, we're not going to focus on Jesus yet. We're going to focus on a different character. Paul, the one who wrote the letter we just read from in 1 Corinthians. But here's something you have to understand. In fact, you can Google this if you want to fact check it against me. But here's the deal. All scholars, both liberal and conservative, all scholars who study New Testament Scripture, and there are, believe it or not, there are atheist New Testament scholars. I don't know how they exist. I don't believe in atheists. No, sorry, just kidding. But they, they, there are atheist New Testament scholars, and there are Christian New Testament scholars. But here's the deal. They all agree that the Apostle Paul was a real figure in history who really existed in the first century. They also all agree that he was one of the most influential men upon the Christian faith that there ever was. In fact, let me put it to you this way. Some of them believe that the Apostle Paul was more influential than Jesus himself. Now, now that, don't call me a heretic. Hear me out here for a minute, okay? Jesus, when he ministered three and a half years, he ministered in a very specific region. And he ministered to a few people. Paul took the gospel into the entire Roman Empire. More people heard the gospel message at the hand or the tongue of Paul and those that traveled with him than who initially heard the gospel preached from Jesus himself, okay, because it went farther. Jesus' ministry contained within the Galilee region and sometimes down Jerusalem, Paul's ministry and his pre preaching of the gospel went throughout the Roman Empire. So it was geographically bigger and hit a larger number of people. So no wonder he's held as the most influential character outside of Jesus in the Christian movement. But that's not all that we have to learn about Paul. Paul also, because of his influence, wrote most of the New Testament, right? You look at your Bibles today, 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament are ascribed to Paul. Now, not everybody agrees on that, so let me bring it down to another point for you. Liberal and conservative scholars, though, agree to this, that Paul wrote eight of them. 
There's eight books that are undisputedly written by Paul that non-believing New Testament scholars and believing New Testament scholars have all agreed on. And of those eight, one of them is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So it is one of his undisputed letters that were attributed to Paul that he wrote in a real time at a real point in history. Now, why is this important for us to understand? Because I don't want this to come across sounding weird, especially if you're super churchy. So hear me first before you make a judgment on me, all right? Listen, I don't want you to believe in the resurrection because the Bible tells you so. Now, that might sound like totally heretical to some of you, but hear me out, please. I believe in the Bible. I believe it is the authority of God. I believe in inspired scripture. So don't, don't miss my point. But there are a lot of people in our world who don't hold the same viewpoint that I have of scripture. And maybe you're one of them. You look at the scripture and you feel like it's infallible. It's not certainly God's word. It's a bunch of men who wrote something for an agenda, for a purpose, to advance an old religion. Maybe that's your viewpoint. But you have to hear this point. I don't want you to believe in the resurrection alone because the Bible tells me so. What we're going to do is we're going to look at a historical, factual letter written at a certain point in time by a known historical figure who declares a message that we cannot ignore. Why is this important? Let me tell you. The Bible, as we know it, did not come together, Old and New Testament, did not come together until about the fourth century. That means about 350-ish years after Jesus died and rose again, we all agreed on what should be the Bible. And 350 years is a lot of years. That would be enough time for a story to become a myth. But listen to my point that I want to make with you today. For an actual event to become a myth, that story has to somehow be altered or changed, right? Think fishing story for a moment with me, all right? Some of you know what I'm talking about. You went fishing, you caught one this size. By the time you got home, it was this big. You have no proof because you caught and released the fish. How convenient for you, right? But now it's like this big. But your fishing partner goes, no, it wasn't. You're an idiot. You're a liar. He fact checks you because he was there with you in the same time. Now, if you told your great, great, great grandchildren who weren't with you, who couldn't ask your fishing partner, and you said, I caught a fish this big that day, they'd have to believe you because nobody else could contest it. All your fishing buddies aren't there today to defend or to deny the size of that fish. My point is, for a story, an actual event in history to become a myth, it has to change. And generally, it takes 60 to 80 years for a myth to become a myth. Why? Because the people who saw it have to die. Because then you can embellish the story. But as long as they're alive or as long as other people are alive who can refute it, it can't be a myth, right? So this is why I want to pay very special attention over the next few minutes to this 1 Corinthians 15 that happened by a real character at a real point in time because we cannot ignore the fact that a myth could not possibly have been developed in the timeline that I want to show you this morning. Here we go. As I've already mentioned, 1 Corinthians is one of the undisputed letters attributed to Paul. So I want to give it some context. Paul's letter that he wrote to the church at Corinth was written in 55 AD. Jesus died roughly around 32 or 30 AD. No one really knows exactly because the way the the calendars have changed and all that kind of stuff. But they kind of pinpointed around 
30 to 32 AD, okay? Paul wrote his letter to the church at Corinth around 55 AD. He wrote this letter because he had already been ministering there on his second missionary journey. He happened to go through Corinth to plant this church. He spent 18 months there. He was with them. He was actually with them in AD 52, okay? So that now puts us within a 20-year time frame of the death and resurrection of Jesus and when Paul was preaching this in Corinth. So what did he have to say? Let's look at it. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, okay, they, they took it, and on which you have taken your stand. So he's calling to their attention what he preached to them when he was there with them. Okay, I'm just reminding you what I already said almost three years ago, all right? He goes on to say, for what I received, what Paul is basically saying here is, I'm going to tell you what somebody else told me to tell you. All right, so what I received as a first importance, and he told them, which we'll get to in a minute, but what he's telling them is something he had received that somebody had told him that he was to tell the somebodies when he was with them. You guys tracking with me here, right? So somebody told him to tell them this story, this gospel message of Jesus Christ. In other words, what Paul told them when he was with them was something that's already been around for a while. It's not Paul's idea. He's not conjuring this up to somehow make his gospel look slicker to the church at Corinth. This has been around already. They can fact check Paul if they want to on what he's preaching. He goes on in verse 3, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Here's the thing you got to understand. Nobody now, no notable scholar, reputable scholar, denies the historical existence of Jesus. He's too well documented, even outside of Scripture. He is documented in Roman writings, in Jewish history, who wouldn't want to have this Messiah part of their history anyway, right? But Josephus speaks about him. The Romans, are, he writes about his death in one of the letters that was written by a Roman historian. He is well documented. So nobody who's a reputable scholar denies a historical Jesus, that was living at a very important time, much like Paul, first century. Nobody denies that. Here's the second thing I have to say. It goes on to say that he was buried. Okay? Nobody is disputing that Jesus died. In fact, it's well documented in the Roman, again, in the Roman histories that there was a man named Christus, they called him because that was his kind of Greek slash Roman version of his name, that was killed. So he's documented as this guy who had, te- had, had a following of people, but he was killed. Nobody, nobody argues the fact that Jesus was real and that he died, and, and ultimately because of that, that he was buried. Now, typically for a criminal, they would be taken off the cross, maybe. Sometimes they're just left to rot and let the, bir- let the birds eat them. But sometimes they would be taken off the cross. Because they were criminals, they couldn't go into the Jewish cemetery. They would be thrown outside the city to burn in the Valley of Gehenna. They have a big burn pile that burns all their trash, and that's where they would toss the bodies of criminals to burn. Why is it that Jesus' body wasn't taken down and thrown onto that trash pile to burn? Here's why. Because a guy named Joseph of Arimathea, who happened to be a Sanhedrin, why is this important? The Sanhedrin are the very people who accused Jesus of blasphemy and worthy of death. And Josephus, or Joseph, I should say, is one of those Sanhedrin. Why would a Sanhedrin risk reputation to ask for the body of Jesus to take it down and give him a proper burial unless the Sanhedrin really believed that Jesus was something special? 
maybe even the Son of God. But then we get to the part that everybody wants to disagree about, verse 4 and 5, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to Scriptures. So, so Paul wrote about this in 55, which he taught them in 52, which is 20 years after the event. Now hang with me. Paul clearly believed that Jesus rose from the dead 20 years after that event. He believes that really happened within 20 years of that event. Now, that wasn't his first missionary trip. Paul had also previously traveled on his first journey and was known to preach in Cyprus in AD 44. What did he preach in AD 44 in Cyprus? The same thing he preached in Corinth in AD 55, that Jesus died, was buried, he rose again, and he was seen. He preached that message in 44. All of a sudden now our timeline is truncating a bit, isn't it? How many years now, you have to come to your math here, how many years between the resurrection and his time in Cyprus in AD 44? How many years? Roughly 12, could be 14. It kind of depends on when you pinpoint the death of Jesus. So now we're down to 12 years. 12 years is not very long if you're 50 years old. But 12 years is a long time ago if you're 14, if you know what I'm saying, right? So there are a lot of people who were well alive, would have still been around 12 years into the story of this Jesus who died and rose again. But wait, the argument said that it was nothing but a myth that was passed down by oral transmission and hadn't been recorded or captured until hundreds of years later. That's the argument. I want to object to the argument today and say no. It had been documented well within the time frame and preached publicly well within the time frame for it not to have time to become a myth. In other words, fact check the people who are still alive, and that's, that's what he does. 1 Corinthians 15, 4 and 5, that he was raised on the third day according to scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. So after 12 years of the event, Paul is declaring that he believes that Jesus not only rose from the dead, but he appeared to Peter, who also believed that Jesus rose from the dead. The question is, how did Paul know that Peter knew that Jesus rose from the dead? Because Peter and Paul weren't necessarily chums, okay? Paul was a Pharisee before he got saved. He hated Christians. He hated the message of of Jesus. He tried to put a stop to it after the resurrection. So all he really knew was about this figure who was a rabbi who gained a lot of popularity, who supposedly came back from the dead, and it was his job to squash that Christian message, Paul. So Peter, being one of the disciples, these wouldn't be chums who grew up together and played sports together, all right? But after Paul's conversion, he goes and visits Peter. Perhaps Paul, in his own way, wants to honor the leadership that's there, but also maybe he wants to do some of his own fact-checking, because Paul had a pretty remarkable moment where he saw Jesus, and he got saved. And then Jesus later kind of appeared in some form to Paul to give him the gospel message that he was preaching. Galatians, which is another one of those undisputed books known to be written by Paul, everybody agrees on. Galatians says it this way, chapter 1, verse 18. Then after three years, that would be three years after Paul was saved, okay, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas. It's not like we're going to hang out and have some ribeyes. No, I'm getting acquainted with him because I really don't know him that well. We're going to get acquainted. And by the way, they probably compared stories. 
What Paul had experienced and what he knew about Jesus and what Peter experienced. In 15 days they spent together, I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. And I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. And guess what? New Testament scholars of all varied degrees do not ever accuse Paul of being a liar or crazy. All right. So this meeting happened around A.D. 40. Three years after Paul's conversion, which would have been A.D. 37. How many years between the death and resurrection of Jesus and Paul's conversion now? How many years? This isn't a trick question. It's just a little math question. Between his salvation at 37 A.D. and the death of Jesus. uh, I think you have the wrong slide up there, Bill. That's probably why they're getting tricked. There we go. There we go. Now... How many years? Yeah, Paul converted five years after the death and resurrection of Jesus when he was vehemently opposed to the Christian movement. How could this guy get saved? How could he all of a sudden turn coat and all of a sudden now he believes in this Jesus unless something radical happened like maybe the appearance of a risen Jesus who spoke to Paul and called him to be a follower of Jesus. This is pretty astounding. In fact, there is history that they teach your kids in school today that is not as solid as this history I just showed you on the screen. And they call it fact. But when it comes to the facts you've presented today concerning real letters written in real time by undisputed authors and Christian leaders, people want to dispute this as a myth. But here's where it gets even trickier, all right? So hang with me here. So what Paul writes in AD 55 about the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, many scholars, again, non-Christian and Christian scholars, agree that what he was quoting from was an early pre-existing creed about Jesus. Now, what is a creed? A creed is kind of a short statement, carefully crafted words to help people remember a very important message. Let me give you an example. Now I lay me down to... Pray the Lord my soul to. Why do you know that? Because somebody taught you that. And probably they taught that before you could read your own prayer. They probably taught it to you as a child. Why? Because they wanted to teach you how to pray. They wanted to kind of give you a formula for prayer, which is kind of a creepy prayer, if you really think about all the way through the rest of that prayer. Um, (laughs) If I should die before I wake. Yeah, that's what I want to go to bed with right now. Um, But you get the idea. Easily, here's another one. A, B, C, D, E, F, H, I, J, K, L, N, O. How'd you know it was P? Right? Because we teach children who can't read or write yet the ABCs by teaching them something memorable. We get this. So what basically happened is shortly after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the leaders put together a creed to help communicate the message in a way that would be easy to remember to safeguard the integrity of that message. And that was the creed that Jesus died, that he was buried, that he rose, and he appeared to people. It's a very, if you, if you look at it in the original language, it is very poetic and very catchy. It's part of what everybody is saying now, a creed. And guess what? Now, here's the big deal. There is an atheist New Testament scholar that says this creed was in circulation as early as 33 AD. 
Why would an atheist scholar want to attest to the fact that creed's been around? Because it's known that that creed existed in various forms before it even found its way in the letter that Paul wrote merely 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. This creed had already been widespread. That's why you already had 500 people who saw the resurrected Jesus. What are they going to tell people? So they create a creed that becomes easily communicated to spread the message, to safeguard it so it wouldn't get twisted and turned into a message that wasn't real. Now, here's the thing. That creed that was written as early as 33 AD, just maybe a year or a couple years after Jesus' death, is the same creed 20 years later that Paul wrote that was recorded in his actual undisputed letter, which is the same creed, by the way, we find today in our Bible, which was assembled in the 4th century that we're reading now in 2018. Here's the deal. For a myth to become a myth, the actual event has to change. Nothing changed in that story. It was preached at the very beginning of time. So why is this important? Why is this important? What does Paul's letter show us? Here it is, and I'm about ready to land the plane. That people in Jerusalem who saw Jesus die believed that he actually rose from the dead. That's what his letter proves. The people who actually saw him die because they were there. Can I remind you? It was Passover. Thousands and thousands, in fact, perhaps a couple of million of Jews swamped Jerusalem during Passover, and they observed the death of Jesus. You couldn't miss it. It was on the Skull Mountain, on Golgotha, above his cross, king of the Jews. Nobody could miss the message or the point, and they mocked him and called for his crucifixion. But then rumblings began. And after that Sunday morning, this Jesus has appeared to some of his followers. Then he appeared to more than 500 people who were in the city, who would have seen it, who could not dispute it. Secondly, Paul's letter proves that the resurrection of Jesus was not a product of decades of oral transmission. Why? Because it was guarded too quickly and preserved too quickly and written about too quickly. Paul's letter, which may be one of the earliest ones, was AD 55. We're not exactly sure when Mark's gospel was written. It, it is the earliest gospel that was written, but we think that probably Paul's letter beats it just 20 years within the event itself. You don't have time to build a myth when people are still alive that you can go fact check. 500 people who saw him alive. You imagine they're probably talking about it to their friends. I think so. It can be hard to keep that kind of quiet when 500 people see a resurrected Savior. They weren't smoking weed, and all of a sudden they all had the same, kind of at the same time, illusion of a Jesus risen. 500 people. It's kind of hard to prove that, and you can go fact check it with them. That was, Paul, that was Paul's point. You don't believe me? Go to Jerusalem and ask around. What I'm telling you, I received because I received it from firsthand witnesses who are still alive, by the way. And who, by the way, are willing to die for this message? Now, what else can we learn from this, this letter? We can learn this. The Bible didn't create Christianity. Regardless of what you've been taught, the Bible didn't create Christianity. In fact, Christians didn't create Christianity. The resurrection created Christianity. Because only an event like that could explain why a guy like Paul become a follower of Jesus, when before that, an educated, well-educated man among the Pharisees. He hated the Christian movement. He gets saved, and by the way, he dies a martyr's death for what he believes. All of Jesus' followers, 
the immediate 12, well, 11 now, and then Matthias becomes the 12th, they all die for what they believe. Are you willing, my friends, to die for a Snow White story? If somebody was to, to hold you today, ransom, and say, tell me if Snow White was real or not, or I'm going to kill you, you'd probably go, mm, whatever, right? We're a fairy tale. We're not going to do that. But they were willing to do this over Jesus, right? Lay their lives down. For a lie? I don't think so. And here's an example that I'll end with. In Acts chapter 4, the apostles are preaching. In fact, it's Peter and John. I'm going to summarize it, so it'll be on the screen if you want to see it. I'm going to just kind of give you the quick summary of it. They're preaching about the resurrected Jesus, and it's upsetting the, upsetting the, the Jewish leaders and the temple guards who have come to arrest them. So they're arrested for preaching the gospel of Jesus, that he died and he rose again. So they're arrested. They're taken into prison, and they're told to give an account of why they're doing what they're doing. And they say in verse 10 of Acts chapter 4, Know this, you and all the people of Israel, is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that we basically stand here proclaiming this today. He has the audacity to talk to the very same people who condemned Jesus to the Romans' death. These are the very same leaders that you crucified Jesus, but that God raised him from the dead. What would give Paul or Peter that kind of boldness? It goes on. And by the way, that also shows us something very important, that that message of the gospel of the resurrection of Christ was preached immediately upon the resurrection of Jesus within weeks. It was preached. So, uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Who speaks that boldly in the face of threat? Who could do that except people who saw a risen Savior who are not afraid to die for what they believe in? Verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Verse 19, but Peter and John replied. So they were told, they were given a gag order, said, don't preach about this Jesus anymore. Don't preach. Look at what they said. Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him. You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. They defended the gospel, the resurrection of Christ, because they saw it and they heard it and they were willing to die for it. The same way that Paul heard it passed on to him, the same gospel message that he preached that was recorded in early texts as undisputable letters written by Paul that he speaks of, that he also lays his life down for. Friends, let me just tell you, the resurrection changes everything. It changes everything. And maybe you're not ready to, to jump all feet in and believe this yet, but I at least want to say, could this remove some of your obstacles? Because sometimes we're almost as naive to believe information against Christ than we're being accused of being naive of holding it. Some of the arguments used against Christ are foolish, but we believe them. Like, we eat them up like candy. Why? Because we are predisposed. We're predis we have a pre decided, preconceived idea about Jesus. So here's where I want to end it today. I've brought you some evidence about Jesus in real time, in real history, by real people. But you still can't accept Christ with your head. It has to 
to be your heart. You have to make a response to what is there. Paul was a guy who had plenty in his head to know about God and to even argue against the reality of Jesus being the Messiah. He would have had it, but yet with his heart, he saw and he believed. So I'm praying that today, for those of you who believe but you wonder, I hope that today you have confidence that Jesus is alive and he has a plan for you right now and for eternity. And you can bank on that. I, I, I pray for those of you who wonder how anybody can believe that maybe one thing I've said today has changed your perspective about the biblical story of Jesus. And maybe you need to look again at the evidence that surrounds his resurrection because there's many other existing proofs. Or if you're the one who used to believe and maybe hopes you still can someday, I invite you back to believe the message that you heard as a child, but yet get some teeth to it to help you navigate through adult life. And that's why we do every Wednesday night at 6.30 here, help adults get a handle of God's word and kids and youth to get a handle of God's word so they can look at real life through the lens of scripture and it can begin to make better sense. The resurrection, friends, changes everything. It changed history. It changed the lives of those who knew Jesus, who became followers of Jesus. It changes life still today, 2,000 years later. Has it changed yours? That's the question. I'm going to invite the praise team back up. I'd like you to bow your heads and close your eyes as we end this service today. Romans 10.9 says this, that if you, could, if you declare or confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It takes both a confession and your heart to bring this together. Maybe you've heard today some evidence that maybe for you was a bit compelling and you want to look further into it. Great. Maybe you're not willing to take that next step, but for others, maybe you're saying, you know what, I need today to confess what I'm beginning to piece together and believe that Jesus was the Son of God who died on a cross for my sins to pay the price for my disobedience against God so he could offer me life, forgiveness, an abundant life he promised for now and an eternal life for later. You see, following Christ isn't about someday I get to go to heaven. I'm glad that's going to happen, but he gives me a better way to live today. A life of less regrets, better choices as I pursue his path. And maybe you're here today and that's what you want to perceive and receive today. Then I invite you to do that. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, maybe you're saying, Kelly, today what I heard, I feel like in some measure I need to respond to. That connection card that you have in your bulletin, there's a box that allows you to, to respond in some way today to this message. And we'll get a hold of you individually. But before we leave, if you're here today and saying, Kelly, I, I heard something today that I just, I feel like I need to respond to in some fashion. You just raise a hand while nobody's looking around and just between me and you, just raise a hand and say, I'm, I'm listening today, Kelly. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. I'm listening. Thank you. Thank you. Hands going up. Thank you. I'm not going to call you forward. I'm just glad to see that this is touching people's hearts. Let me pray with you. Father, you see these hands that are raised. You know where they are in life. You know their hurts. You know their hang-ups, you know their habits, but you love them. And you really sent Jesus in real time to die way before we could do anything to deserve it because we haven't even been alive yet. But Jesus, you took that penalty on the cross. The wrath of sin placed upon you that you died to break the hold that sin has over our lives. As we confess you as Lord, we find forgiveness. And then we find a new hope, a new reason to live, a new way to live, and an eternity 
in front of us. So God, I thank you for my friends today with hands raised saying, I want to receive that. I want to believe that. God, I pray you would bless them now in the name of Jesus. May their hearts be drawn to you. May they be hungrier and thirstier now for your word like never before. I pray they would dig into 1 Corinthians further and find out more about what they believe that will lead them to a confidence in who you are today. That you're not some dead hero in the ground, but you are a risen Savior who lives around us right now and within us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We respond to you today, Jesus, and we say yes. In Jesus' name, amen.